Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we leak weird and wonderful science directly into your memes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special edition, I speak with Tracy Ainsworth and Steph Gardner about the science of coral. Tracy Ainsworth is an associate professor and Steph Gardner is a postdoctoral research associate. They work together at the University of New South Wales studying coral. I began by asking Tracy and Steph, it's a big week for coral science in the National Science Week this year. What's happening? So in Science Week this year, we're going to be talking about corals, but corals in New South Wales predominantly, which people might not be aware of, but there's some amazing coral populations that you can find all the way from the northern borders and places like the Solitary Islands, all the way down to Sydney and even down into some of the colder water places in southern New South Wales. There's also cold water corals down there as well. Corals in New South Wales, a lot of people would know there are corals in New South Wales. And so that's one of your areas of research. That's something we're really interested in now in the lab here at UNSW is to study corals around New South Wales. One of the first places we started working was out at Lord Howe Island, which is probably more familiar to most of your listeners, that there's corals and reef out at Lord Howe Island. It's the southernmost reef from the GBR. So we've started doing some research out there to understand the health of that system. So we're looking at diseases, corals get diseases. So we're trying to understand the diseases that they have, when they occur, what's influencing those diseases and then also things like bleaching. So some of your listeners may have heard this year we documented a bleaching event over on Lord Howe Island, which is, from memory, I think the third bleaching event that has occurred over there now. And, of course, for our international listeners, the importance of the southernmost reef is it's the coolest. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's a place that we probably, and for most people, particularly around the world, will probably think is remote, it's pristine, it's untouched, because it's, you know, a thousand kilometres off the coastline, just northeast of Sydney. You know, it's out in the Pacific Ocean. It's far away from people, really. There's a small population there. So it is quite surprising to think that we are seeing bleaching events happening there and happening more frequently there as well. And that's something we really want to understand more about what does that mean for that reef the consequences for the corals how quickly can they recover and then how does that compare to some of the things that we've been seeing on the great barrier reef and so down to the basics what happens when a coral is bleaching well essentially coral bleaching is a stress response to like thermal stress or when we've got increased water temperatures so what actually happens there is it's a breakdown in the symbiosis so you've got the animal host and the symbiote algae living within them. The host gets quite stressed and it will essentially expel these algae. The coral is still alive then so the animal is still alive and it can actually return back to life and it can persist after that if the conditions return to normal. But the problem with bleaching is that it can turn to death when these temperatures persist for maybe over two, three weeks, a month or something like that and it's too hot or too acidic for these corals and that's when we get death. So That's another thing that I guess a lot of people 
are sort of not really sure about coral bleaching that they can actually recover and it's really important that these temperatures return back to normal so we do get the recovery and um, the corals can persist after that. It's quite amazing with some of the work that we do we actually get to see inside a coral on a cellular level and when you see that interaction of a single coral cell and inside it is a single dinoflagellate cell and that is spread across the entire animal. It's quite amazing that this has happened in nature. So those algal cells are alive inside the coral cell. They're, they're producing sugars that the coral uses as nutrition. Those cells are dividing. The coral knows to remove one cell if there's one too many from inside its single cell. It's quite an incredible balance that's happening in these organisms and, and yeah, like Steph said, once temperatures become too much and that that relationship that one cell inside one cell relationship becomes stressed the coral will expel the the algae which it needs for its nutrients and once the algae have been expelled are they if conditions do become better are they still around in the water on their own they're still around in the water and they're also still around in some parts of the coral. So the coral's actually a really interesting three-dimensional structure. It has polyps that sit out and those provide little areas of shade. And when we look at that single cell level, we can actually see some of those algae if the event hasn't been too severe, some of those algae are actually still in little pockets hidden away from the light where the algae is still in symbiosis. And then they're able to start dividing and repopulating those empty cells. But it's really, it's really important that, like Steph said, those temperatures aren't too severe and that they don't last too long. So that animal can survive the bleaching and there's algae that are alive and intact in the symbiosis still and they can repopulate those tissues. There were stories in the news last year trying to suggest that the effects of acidification from warming wasn't as bad as we thought. Were those reports in the media accurate? I would say that understanding acidification is extremely complex because what we're seeing is we have the with a coral, you have the coral tissue that sits over the top of the skeleton, which has that symbiosis, but then it has a skeleton, a calcium carbonate skeleton underneath, and that calcium carbonate skeleton can actually be exposed to the seawater as well. It's not entirely protected in, in the colonial coral. So anything that dissolves away that skeleton is going to put a lot of stress on the strength of the colony, the integrity of the coral, capacity to handle wave action, anything like that. So... Understanding acidification is actually really complicated because there's a lot of changes in a reef habitat in how acidic the water is, and corals do live in that. But it's the same as temperature and the same for us, for everything. We have an, a range in which we function ideally and outside that range starts to apply pressure and the further we move away from what's normal, the harder it is for any animal, whether it's us or whether it's a coral, to function. So these severe heat waves that are going around the world every year now are not a good thing for corals as well as all the land animals. Yeah, the severe heat waves are actually really concerning. We've actually got some research coming out next week where we've simulated what happened in 2016 on the northern GBR, Northern Great Barrier Reef, for the severe marine heat wave event. What happened when we were studying that event in 2016, the ecology team were bringing samples of the corals back from those northern reefs. And we were looking at the biology, you know, what had happened on a cellular level, on an organism level to these corals on the on the reef. And what was 
really quite shocking to everyone that was handling those samples that were coming back was there was hardly any tissue left and the skeletons were really fragile, really, really thin, and we'd never seen this before. For me personally, I've been studying coral bleaching now for nearly 15 years, and we've done all kinds of experiments and studied bleaching on the reef, and how we always talk about bleaching is it's the breakdown of a symbiosis and the animal remains intact and it can recover. But the samples we were getting from 2016, we were calling them ghost corals because there was hardly any tissue left. There was, as soon as we started to try and look at it at a cellular level, there was nothing there. There was just overgrown with algae and the skeletons were breaking apart. So we actually went um, to Heron Island and we replicated that experimentally. And what we found is that there's temperatures at which corals bleach and that symbiosis breaks down. But if it gets just a little bit hotter, a little bit more severe, that bleaching doesn't happen. The coral itself just dies. We still see a white coral and a white reef, but that animal tissue is not intact. There's not those pockets of intact symbiosis and, and organism surviving. You actually just have a coral that has died and the skeleton that's left over. And what we found from that study was what happens when you've got warm water and lots of sunlight, anyone who's kept an aquarium or even kept a bucket of water outside their house has seen straight away algae grows. Algae loves warm water and lots of light. And that's what happened to the corals as well. Straight away they died and then straight away they got colonised by algae which grew over the coral and dissolved out that skeleton. And we found straight away those skeletons started to crumble. And that has a lot of consequences when we talk about what does bleaching mean to reefs, because if it bleaches and it survives, there's a capacity for recovery and there's a capacity that that system, how it functions, will continue into the future. But if we have immediate mortality and widespread mortality, not only do we lose the symbiosis, we lose the animal, but we also lose the home that those animals provide to other invertebrates because it becomes this overgrown reef algal matrix. It's dissolving away that three-dimensional structure and the place where invertebrates live, fish live, disappears within weeks is what we found as that was going within weeks. So the marine heat waves are really concerning for what we're seeing in all marine ecosystems. So when the corals die it becomes a completely different environment and so all the organisms that used to live there can't live there anymore. Yeah, exactly. They lose their they lose their home, and there's all kinds of animals that live around corals, you know, snails that actually feed on corals, things that need it for home, and they need it for the food that they rely on. So once that animal and that home is lost, there's follow-on effects to the reef straight away. I think a lot of people wouldn't be used to thinking of corals as animals either. Can you talk more about that? Oh, they're beautiful animals. They're amazing. As soon as you get the chance to see a coral just under a microscope and, and see its polyps sitting out and it's feeding. I love talking to school groups and I get school kids to stand up and put their arms out and pretend that they're just one big mouth and they have to wave their arms and capture things floating around them to eat. And if you see a classroom full of kids do that, that's exactly what a coral looks like. You know, bright colours, arms going everywhere and, and you know, feeding going on, on the reef. And it's the, the wall of mouths. It's, it's quite spectacular to be able to see that what does from a distance look like a rock as soon as you get up close to see this beautiful animal. Yeah, I guess a lot of the corals that we've been finding in and around Sydney as well, a lot of people 
I guess, mistake them for rocks because it's quite the encrusting form. So they're just growing on top of the rocks and sometimes the colours aren't as bright and colourful as we're getting up on the reef. So when they're not these branching forms as well, it is a little bit confusing for people. But yeah, they're definitely still animals with these algae inside and they're still corals and they're still doing the same kind of functions and stuff as what we're getting up on the reef. So if anyone has a chance to look at a coral up close, get up close and have a look, even if you see it in an aquarium, and just, just wait for things to, to quieten down and the polyps to come out and, and, yeah, they'll see it in a whole new way. People do grow coral in aquariums. So what's the baby form of a coral? So corals spawn and they'll spawn the, the eggs and the sperm into the water column, which forms a larvae and then they settle into juvenile small corals and they start as a single polyp and then divide and and grow into the colony that we recognise as a large uh, polyp. Interestingly some corals also brood their young so they have a larvae that actually grows in the mouth in the gut and then they expel uh, that single polyp larval juvenile coral out into the water column and it settles and, and grows into you know what we're used to seeing but yeah there's juvenile coral on a reef that we just people probably just don't know to look for. They're just smaller forms of the big colony. There's amazing time lapses as well of these baby corals growing, like people who have them on settlement tiles or something like that. You can see the, the polyps sort of attached to it and then they start growing and then they start laying down the calcium carbonate skeleton. And some of these time lapses, like they're just, they're beautiful. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. So what is it that's happening in Science Week? So during Science Week, we have an event at the Sydney Institute for Marine Science. We've got two days working with school groups to teach them about New South Wales corals. And there's some really interesting experiences that Steph and the team have arranged, uh, virtual reality, so they can take a dive on a reef and they can take a dive on a... Uh, reef from Queensland and also a reef from New South Wales that's been set up by researchers at the University of Sydney. That'll be fun, they'll be able to come and see coral skeletons, the coral tissue, we're also going to show them live coral and how we study coral. Also at Sims we're setting up some aquarium systems there so that we can actually do research on corals right here, you know, right next to Sydney Harbour. And then on the evening of the 10th, we have an open event where we're asking the public to come in and meet scientists, talk to us about corals and coral reefs in New South Wales, hear about some of the research that's going on at the institutions that are associated with the Sydney Institute for Marine Science. We know so much about the tropical places with climate change, maybe we probably don't know as much about the temperate systems and how increasing sea surface temperatures, increasing ocean temperatures are going to affect the, the habitats that we know here in New South Wales and that's something that Steph's been doing in her postdoc. What is tropicalisation? Tropicalisation essentially refers to when the warmer water species start moving polewards, so the tropical species or the warmer water species like fish and corals, they're coming down, you know, on the EAC, the East Australian Current, like Nemo, I'm sure everyone's quite familiar with that, but they start to come further down south, so that's why we have started seeing them in and around these areas. Mainly where our group focuses on is the Solitary Islands just off Coffs Harbour, and that's about 700 kilometres north of Sydney, and we've got this really great system there. We've got inner shore, mid-shelf and the outer reefs that give us this really good gradient of being able to study the interactive effects of what is happening there. So we're getting a loss of the kelps and the seaweed species and all of these invasives or the corals that are coming from the tropics are starting to settle. We're getting some really unique interactions between the two as well that we still don't know a whole lot about.
I think a big thing about this as well is the the temperate systems we've got in Australia alone covers about 8,000 kilometres and it's it's huge, like it's a really big area and it is still quite understudied so it's really important that we understand what's happening at these systems because into the future when we start getting warmer water and these changes that are occurring it'll help us get a bit more of an understanding to help guide policy and management for decision-making processes. As the waters get warmer and some of the tropical species come down, what happens to the temperate species that used to live there? Well, I guess that's something we still need to understand, you know, whether that's increasing competition, predation, the increase in competition for food resources, that type of thing. We're still trying to understand what's happening between these two species, but a lot of the juveniles that have come down with the warmer water, sometimes they don't hang around, sometimes the conditions aren't right or there's not the right food source for them or other conditions that just aren't optimal, so they aren't hanging around. But as we've been seeing over the past few years, a lot of them have been able to hang around and they are lasting longer than we thought and even growing into adults. And yeah, over overwintering, I guess. And we've started seeing that in Sydney as well. So some of the tropical species like Nemo and, you know, all little Nemo's friends, you're finding them in Sydney in some of the snorkelling spots. And initially it looks quite unusual. You're like, what, you know, did it get lost? But it is hanging out and they are surviving. And I guess we probably will see quite a lot more of that happening into the future. I guess the effects that people might notice and as well as if they're not actually going diving yeah. is that there's a lot more tropical organisms coming further and further south. I guess the easiest one to notice is probably the fish because they do move a lot and it is is something that people would notice more rather than the corals. In 2016, we had a really big bleaching event that was a global bleaching event, but also in Sydney Harbour, the corals that we had, they bleached quite severely. And a lot of people hearing it on the news for starters were like wow there's corals in Sydney like this is really weird but when you start to know where they are and what the morphology of these ones look like in Sydney Harbour you can identify these but it is probably the fish that are a lot more I guess obvious or noticeable for people when they're swimming around or seeing these kinds of things popping up. Is that going to affect the fishing industry? Are there different fish from what they're used to catching? We don't know yet. I think we really don't know what's going to happen with these different interactions and how well some of the species that are coming in can take up habitat or whether they fit in alongside other species and it becomes more diverse. It's it's certainly an area of research we're starting to, to look into more. And particularly with your question about heat waves. Heat waves are impacting temperate systems just as much as they're impacting tropical systems and they're really damaging to things like kelps and seagrasses and seaweeds. So it's really important for us to start to understand what happens in these systems when you have those big events and some of the habitat forming organisms on the benthos which are home to other organisms are impacted what does that mean going forward as temperatures getting warmer as the as the ecosystem itself the environment that these animals and plants live in changes who are going to be the winners and who is who is going to be most affected i think that one of the most important things for the public to think about and for people to think about with coral reefs is that it's still important that they care. All is not lost. These are really damaging events and we are trying to understand them better. But what we really need is for people to care. We need people to be saying to government, to decision makers, 
to tourism bodies, to anyone that will listen, that they care about coral reefs, that it matters to them, it matters to their kids that there's this place that they can go and see you know, this incredibly diverse ecosystem and that it will be sustainable into the future. And I think that's really, really important for people to keep caring. These ecosystems as well, it's something that I think everyone should have the privilege of being able to explore and find out themselves. Like I remember my first time diving, it's this completely different world and it's different sounds, different sights, everything is just, it's, it, it is really special. I'm not biased, but I, I mean, I think it is pretty special, but it does mean a lot when people actually care about it and they want to go and explore these environments and, you know, it's something that's just right on our backyard too. So having people interested and caring about these things, I think there's flow on effects then for taking action and stuff moving forwards. That old saying of think global, act local still applies. Everything they do on a local scale matters and also you know, considering each of our impacts on a global scale, it's, it's how society changes. So people shouldn't be put off by the complexity of the problem and there's all these different problems, plastics, pollution, runoff, temperature, global warming. They, it can be, it's overwhelming to the people who are working in there. I imagine it's immensely overwhelming people who hear about it, you know, once or twice a week. But they shouldn't be overwhelmed. You know, every little bit that everyone does completely matters. So re reducing our impact in every way is really important. Another part that a lot of people don't realise is half of the oxygen we breathe, or one in every two breaths, actually comes from the ocean and the coral reefs and everything is actually interrelated. So, you know, if we do lose these coral reefs, a lot of animals that rely on that, you know, there's flow and effects that, that do end up affecting us. So it is something that is really important for people to, you know, get involved with and start caring about and have that kind of passion or drive to want to protect it, particularly because we need to keep looking after it for future generations. Well, Tracy, Steph, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Tracy Ainsworth and Steph Gardner from the University of New South Wales talking about coral. You can see them talking at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science in Mossman on Thursday the 8th of August and Saturday the 10th of August for National Science Week. I'll put up a link on the show notes. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. time when man began to control the environment, he has been plagued by his limited ability to speculate. His failure to accurately predict the effect in the contraposed action. This is the result of his not being able to consider and relate all the factors in a problem. Evidence of this inability can be seen in the persistence of a certain kind of myth involving three wishes. In a frantic effort to reap immediate rewards, the first wish is often not too wise. The second usually tends to overcorrect. Our hero can consider himself lucky if after the last wish, he ends up just where he started. But there were men whose wishes were not only prudent, but had a habit of coming true. These men, 
and women were artists and had certain characteristics in common. They were seldom bored with anything. They were constantly building up stores of information in active memory banks. When confronted with a specific need, they would call on these memory banks for information, which they would run through, sort out, and relate to the problem at hand. These men could speculate and could predict. They were artists, artists in many fields, architecture, mechanics, medicine, science, politics, and the art of relating factors. It is often not a conscious art, and the degree to which it is operative can tend to make one normal, bright, super bright, or genius. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker, or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambaka Valley, three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, two XFM in Canberra, and my local station, two RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords, so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, 
now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.